You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. On Worldview this week, as talks in Geneva on the Syrian war broke down last week, a not unrelated offensive by the Syrian government on the historic city of Aleppo, supported by Russian air power, virtually sealed it off for the first time. UN officials fear that up to 350,000 people may now be cut off from food and medical supplies and from the Turkish border. Damascus seems completely uninclined to allow access by humanitarian convoys. In New Hampshire, two frontrunners appear set to dominate and win the primary on Tuesday. Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. Sanders is that rarest of US phenomena, a socialist. We get the perspective of another of these strange beasts on his campaign and on a poorly reported phenomenon in US politics. And in France, a peculiar political and academic French row over the gradual phasing out of one of its grammatical quirks, the circumflex, a diacritic that sits on top of letters and bamboozles many a poor student. I'll be discussing Syria with our foreign affairs correspondent, Ruin McCormack, the US election with Seattle politician, Shama Savant, and French grammar with Lara Marlowe, our Paris correspondent. I'm Patrick Smith. Worldview is an Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from our global network of correspondents. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to get Worldview delivered to you free of charge each week. First, Ruin McCormick and Syria. Ruin, the tentative opening of talks in Geneva last week broke down after three days, largely because of the refusal of the Syrian government and its allies to consider a temporary ceasefire. The UN mediator, Stefan de Mistura, says that this is a temporary breakdown and they, they will resume at the end of the, the month. Is that realistic? I wouldn't hold my breath. Um, the ostensible reason is that uh, the, Rus- the Assyrians and their allies, as you say, wouldn't agree to a ceasefire. There were disputes over um, humanitarian aid um, into Syria. But the background is, is that um, had these talks begun let's say, 18 months ago, Assad would have been on the back foot. Um, The tide was turning against him. He was making announcements. He was saying that, look, until now we've fought on the basis that um, we we can fight on multiple fronts at the same time. Um, At that point, about a year ago to 18 months ago, he was beginning to say, well, we're going to start choosing our, picking our battles here. We can't continue to fight on all fronts at the same time. He was going on national television and saying, we need more people to sign up for the National Army. So there was a clear sense that the tide was turning on him. That's not the case now. The dynamic is very different. So these talks are taking place at a time when uh, Assad, supported by the Russians who began their intervention last September, Assad is on the front foot. He's making gains all over northwestern Syria. Um, he's approaching um, the two roads that lead. One road leads between goes from Latakia to um, to Aleppo. The other from Damascus to Aleppo. They're two really strategic, strategically vital uh, roads, and he's close to taking them. He's taken a lot of towns and villages around them. Uh, and he's uh, closing in on, on Aleppo, um, again with the help of Russian uh, airstrikes. So we now have the real prospect of Assad's forces completely encircling Aleppo. But in, in terms of the, of the actual talks, uh, in order to succeed, there has to be a degree of good faith and commitment. Uh, 
more than just turning up a political will to succeed. And, and it's clear that there wasn't in the case particularly of Damascus and Moscow. That's right. And I think this background is, is the reason for that, in that they're in a stronger position now. Um, I think most people would accept that a negotiated settlement is going to be the outcome. Um, I think most people would, 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 would agree that long term, that's probably how this is going to end. But it's all about what position you want to find yourself in at the point where that negotiated settlement has to be agreed. And so there's not the same need on the part of Assad and the Russians uh, to, to go to the negotiating table now and, and make concessions. They want to make sure that they have as much territory as they can, as they can get at the point where they're going to make possible concessions around the negotiating table. Now, the opposition were represented in Geneva, sort of. Is there any coherence there? There's a certain degree of coherence in that uh, 18 months ago, you had, uh, particularly in northwestern Syria, you had a multiplicity of, of factions among the rebels. You had the old FSA, what remains of the FSA, the Free Syrian Army. You, have, you had uh, the al-Nusra Front, which is affiliated to al-Qaeda, and you had a number of other groups. Um, last year, they coalesced into what's known as Jaish al-Fatah, which is the known as the Army of Conquest in English, um, at the urging of the Turks in particular and the Saudis, because the Turks and the Saudis wanted to deal with one group They've been supporting the rebels in that area for, since almost the beginning of the war, and they wanted to be able to deal with one group. So it, to a certain extent, there's, there's unity there. But there are signs that it's fraying. And of course, there are some groups in that coalition, the, the, the Army of Conquest, who are not represented at the talks in Geneva, uh, uh, Nusra for one, and th they would be the biggest uh, single grouping in that coalition. So there's a certain amount of, of, of uh, strategic coalescing on the battleground. Uh, but A, they're not all represented at the negotiating table, and B, there are signs in the last couple of months that that coalition is fraying. Now back to um, Aleppo. Uh, can you give us a sense of the state of affairs in, in, in Aleppo and, and in, in the, the region? Because it's, it's really the whole region which is under pressure too. Well, what's clear in the last couple of weeks is that the momentum has shifted decisively in that region towards Assad, uh, supported by, supported by the, the Russian airstrikes. And there are two key dates. Firstly, on September 30th last year, the Russian airstrikes began. Um, at that point, Assad was on the back foot. Um, slowly, over the last over the next couple of months after the Russians began their intervention, Assad began to reverse the gains that the opposition had made in the previous uh, year. Uh, he's he's close to taking those two vital arteries I mentioned. He's been taking towns and villages all along the all around the uh, the northwest of the country. Um, and, and so Russia's help has really helped him to turn to begin turning the tide. And that has accelerated in the last couple of weeks to, to a point now where uh, Aleppo is surrounded by government forces on three sides um, and he is close to encircling it completely. There's a population of 350,000 in Aleppo. Originally 2 million. Originally 2 million. It was the biggest pre-war city. And it has a strategic value because of its location quite close to the Turkish border, but it also has a huge symbolic value because Aleppo was one of the symbolic hearts of the uprising uh, against Assad's rule. The second key date, I think, is the 24th of November, and that was when the Turks um, shot down a Russian uh, uh, jet, which it said had passed into its, it, into its airspace. After that, there was a change in direction. There seems to have been a strategic shift on the part of the Russians and, and Assad. Previously, they had concentrated their fire further south. What happened after that incident was that the Russians began far more intensely to bomb north of Aleppo and west of Aleppo. And that's significant because... Uh, a, it allowed them to encircle Aleppo more quickly, but B, it allowed them to 
begin closing off access to the only two remaining border crossings between Turkey and Syria. One is called Bab al-Hawa, uh, which is to the north of Idlib province, a little further west, and the other is called Bab al-Salam, which is at the top of a quite narrow corridor that leads up to uh, the Turkish border, and the nearest Turkish town to that would be Kilis. And and so the reason for trying to close off access to close off access through these two uh, corridors is because Assad and the Russians know that weapons are coming in across the Turkish border and making their way to Aleppo. So it it really helps them uh, encircle Aleppo and 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 choke Aleppo. The fear in Aleppo, of course, is that once it is encircled and it looks now if the momentum. Uh, if it stays as it is, it looks as though Aleppo will be encircled. And the fear is that the same thing will happen in Aleppo as happened in Medaya, as happened in Dera Azor, uh, as happened in Homs, which is that the uh, Syrian government forces temp- attempt to choke it, to starve it. So already we're seeing that fuel, very little fuel has got in, in the past week. Um, there will become a, there will come a point where it's very difficult to get food in, clean water. The only people who'll be able to pay for food will be people who are able to pay exorbitant prices. Um, and so you're facing a, a very real humanitarian catastrophe. Not only that, but people in the surrounding region are, are facing a real catastrophe as well, potentially, because the Russian uh, airstrikes are not focused only in and around Aleppo, but across this whole swathe of northwest Syria. And we've already seen that in the last week, up to 40, in fact, more than 40,000 people um, who aren't directly from Aleppo, they're from the, the area in the north Aleppo countryside, they've made their way towards the, the Turkish border. And now they're stuck there because the Turks are keeping the border closed. And the Turks have a difficult decision to make now. Well, it should be an easy decision in, in many respects, but they've got 40,000 people camped on their border. Um, there's no safe zone. Um, there's uh, Russian airstrikes coming relatively close to where they are uh, and the Turks are, have indicated that long term they will let them in but we don't know what the immediate uh, prospect is for these people. And, and the, the Syrian government and the, and the Russians, uh, not only do they have, an, they have an interest in preventing arms and, and personnel from getting into Aleppo, but do they have an interest in preventing refugees from leaving? Is that, is that part of their strategy or is that just an unfortunate consequence? It could well be part of the strategy, um, in that uh, you know it, it's it's it, it makes it uh, Aleppo uh, a much more important strategic target. If there's a huge population still in there, it keeps it uh, in the in international. It keeps the international focus on it, but not necessarily completely. In that, if you've got forty thousand uh, people spilling into Turkey and then onto Europe, uh, it. it it means that this is still a problem for Europe, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, a bad thing for uh, for Assad. The other angle on this is that losing Aleppo, if the rebels lose Aleppo, um, it's potentially a, a good thing for ISIS, um, for the Islamic State, in that um, if the rebels are uh, in fact in effect eliminated from Aleppo and the area around the north uh, Aleppo countryside and, and even parts of Idlib then you could find yourself in a situation where ISIS are able to claim to be the sole defender of Sunni Muslims in in uh, Syria. Uh, until now, of course, the West has put a lot of store by the Free Syrian Army and other relatively moderate groups uh, fighting uh, Syrian uh, Sunni groups fighting in northwestern Syria. If they're no longer there, the question becomes, well, who fights against 
ISIS. The Russians and the, the Assad government have shown little inclination to take the fight to ISIS, so who does? And the question then becomes, well, is there any immediate prospect of a ground invasion? Who's to carry that out? And what are its chances of success? And I was going to come to that, actually. And what what, uh, what of ISIS? Where is, is the fighting in, in the territory they, they control uh, basically abated? Or, or is it still fighting as fiercely as, as ever? There's a lot of very intense fighting going on between ISIS and Kurdish forces to the north but further east. There's also uh, quite intense fighting going on between um, rebel slash Assad forces and ISIS uh, on the east, to the east of Aleppo because ISIS have come quite close to Aleppo on, on the east. So that's still going on. Um, but it's established by now that only about 10% of the Russian airstrikes are targeting ISIS in any way. Um, and where they do target ISIS, they're quite strategic. So they target um, power plants, they target airfields, they target sites that are, are, are particularly useful. And while ISIS has had to contract the space it controls in certain areas, notably much further east in Iraq, um, it has generally been able to to hold its position. So if you look at the map of Syria now, you'll see that 60-65% of the territory, the whole country is controlled by ISIS. Now, a lot of that is desert and scrubland. It's not of huge strategic value. But it is a fact that uh, the territory controlled by ISIS has only minimally contracted since the Russians intervened last September. Thank you very much, Ruin. And so to Paris and our correspondent, Lara Marlowe. The French take the defence of their language very seriously. Its use is policed by the prestigious Académie Française, whose members are known as the Immortals. They rule on what is right and wrong, and particularly in entries into the Académie's official dictionary. So the limitation on the use of the circumflex that they're now proposing and the changes to about 2,400 words uh, comes from uh, uh, on high. Lara, can you explain the process and mention some of the key changes? It actually started under Michel Rocard's government uh, in 1990. He, he asked the Académie Française to recommend spelling changes. Uh, and they came out with a report which was published in the Journal Officiel. Uh, their recommendations were relaunched in official bulletin by the uh, Ministry of Education in 2008. That was when Sarkozy was president. Nobody paid any attention whatsoever. Uh, and it was republished again last autumn. And Again, no one paid any attention. The reason it has suddenly become a very hot issue is that the publishers of school manuals have announced that at last, for the autumn of 2016, they are going to make these changes in spelling. Uh, and it's become a, a sort of battle horse for the French right, uh, criticizing the government, accusing the Ministry of, of Education of trying to sneak through this reform, which is actually 26 years old and which was approved by a very, very conservative body, which is the Académie Française. Uh, so the right is criticizing it. Um, my, my personal theory is that um, it shows you a lot about France. I mean, the fact that it takes 26 years to push through a reform, the fact that the French want to regulate uh, absolutely everything, including how you spell words, um, and, and the sort of capriciousness of the, the academicians, the immortals, as you say, who originally approved this, and now suddenly they're against, say they're against it. Uh, Jean Dormesson, who's uh, one of the eldest academicians who's been there since the early 1970s, uh, said, excused himself, saying, well, at the time I, I was um, favorable to reform, but, um, you know, all these years later, people are so unhappy and the, and the country's in a terrible state. 
right. <laughs> so that's why he's against the reform now. Now, one of the main focuses is on, on the reducing the, the use of the circumflex. Uh, that's right, but only on two letters, only on the, I think it's the I and the U, uh, and where it doesn't change the pronunciation or the meaning of a word. I'm, I kind of like, I have a certain amount of sympathy for all of the um, internauts who've been sending out tweets saying uh, with the hashtag, je suis circonflex, uh, because... For me, the circumflex an is a An analogy, of, I think we should say, say to readers, to, to the je suis Charlie. Exactly. It's a, it's a sort of sign of solidarity um, based on what happened after the, the, the first horrible attacks by jihadists last year. Um, now, the circumflex usually indicates that there was an S in medieval French at the place. Where, and, for example, you have forêt, forest, uh, hôpital, hospital. Uh, and what I liked about the circumflex is it, it showed the relationship between French and English. You could actually see the evolution of the word in the word. Now, there are two words which will lose their circumflex under the new rules, uh, maîtresse, mistress, uh, and coût, which That's means cost. And certainly when you, when you imagined an S in those words, you, you could see how close they were to the English. Well, maîtresse certainly loses a bit of its mystique uh, in, in, in losing its, its circumflex. Um, some of the changes are attempts to Frenchify English words that have entered the French lexicon, like le weekend, the hyphen is there to go, or uh, they're introducing le selfie into the dictionary, apparently. <laughs> and... and uh, the English creeping in of English words has always upset purists. Uh, I was at a dinner last year with the French embassy with, with Prime Minister uh, Manuel Walls, and we were discussing French leadership uh, in Europe. And to tease him, I asked him, was there not a French word for leadership? And puzzled, he confessed that no, he couldn't think of one. And now l'Académie Française has taken the issue in hand by requiring it to be spelled leader, L-E-A-D-E-U-R. Very, very ugly, but not exactly English. And I think some of the worst, most awkward words are when the French take an English word and sort of bastardize it. Um, you know, you have, I remember when the German wings plane crashed last year, all, the, all of my colleagues in, in French media were talking about l'avion s'est craché, um, the, the, the plane crashed. I mean, they were taking the English verb to crash and, and, and conjugating it in the French way. And actually, craché, spelled differently, means to spit. You know, so it, it can create a certain confusion. Uh, but the English, I think that, frankly, social media, it's, it's very ironic that this campaign against the spelling reform is being led by social media, because social media have done more to destroy the French language than anyone else on, on, on earth, you know, and you, and you see the way, for example, instead of writing say it is, you know, C apostrophe E-S-T, um, anyone on who's tweeting or blogging or, or just, you know, sending an SMS will just put the letter C. Um, and, and there's, you know, you get expressions like uh, le buzz. Le, le, le buzz means, you know, that there's, there's a good kind of um, dynamic around something. But the French just talk about le buzz rather than the dynamic um, stop. Uh, I hear a lot of French people say yes now because it's sort of trendy. It's fashionable to use English words because they're short and sharp and they have a kind of punch to them that a lot of the French words don't. Now, only in France could politics in intrude on this and, and it become a, a, a political uh, issue. Uh, National Front, I gather, is leading the charge on, on this. How, is this more widely seen as a serious political issue? 
Is it widely seen as a serious political issue? No. I, the problem in France now is that everybody's against everything, and everything becomes an issue. Um, and everything, everything, everything particularly done by the socialist government? Yes. People are very fed up with the government, and they oppose everything the government does. I mean, a, a case in point is the um, the nationality stripping, which Hollande wants to put in the Constitution, is going to be voted on either today, Tuesday, or tomorrow, Wednesday. Uh, and everybody, you know, when, when Hollande announced it in the Congress in Versailles on November 16, the entire National Assembly and Senate stood up and gave him a standing ovation. And... And, you know, suddenly, three months later, they're all against it. Um, and it's, it crosses party lines and so on. And it's, it's just this thing of starting taking apart any change and, and dividing it into its smallest uh, components and finding reason to find fault with it. I mean, the, the spelling reform, for example, is not obligatory. Uh, students will not be penalized if they still write words in the old way. Uh, and dictionaries will be, give both spellings. And, you know, it's, you could sort of say it's not the end of the world. But I can understand how language is a bit different from tinkling with, the, say, the labor code or, or even, well, the, 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 the nationality stripping is the Constitution. That's pretty serious stuff. But uh, the language is, is somehow sacred to the French. It, it's different. It's a monument. It's like the Chateau de Versailles or the, the Eiffel Tower. Um, it's something that has been built up over a, a thousand years, uh, which is very, very precious to them and which they're very proud of. And you touch something like that at your peril. Well, I, I certainly, I saw a, a National Front speaker talking about the French language being our soul. But anyway, merci beaucoup, Lara, and bonne journée. Merci, bonne journée, Paddy. You're listening to the Irish Times. Self-described socialist Bernie Sanders is expected on Tuesday to win the New Hampshire primary against Hillary Clinton comfortably. Polls ahead of the primary give him a lead ranging from 10 to 16 points. It's a remarkable performance for a man whose political label would once have been so anathema to American politics that elected socialist politicians are as rare in the U.S. as hen's teeth. One of them, Chama Savant, a city council member in Seattle who was re-elected recently with over 90,000 votes, was in Dublin last week, and I spoke to her about her radically different take on this election and the Sanders phenomenon. But first, her own election. She sees a political tide turning. I think that... The success we've had, not just being elected, but being re-elected, as you said, in Seattle, is really a, a reflection of the deep disgust that majority of working people in America feel at the domination of uh, corporations and big business in politics. And uh, their observation, you know, as the Occupy movement showed, that the majority of the gains of the economy go to the very top, you know, sliver of elite, while the rest of Americans are struggling to find their little piece of the American dream and failing to do so. And so there is a, there is a, uh, just a very fundamental questioning of society that is going on. I, I know, I know I'm not claiming that it's all very uh, coherently organized and everybody agrees on a particular definition of socialism, but what is happening, especially for the younger generation, is uh, an sort of a ongoing 
questioning and also uh, to many of the uh, um, you know more far thinking uh, people a rejection of capitalism and so what we observed in Seattle was that contrary to what most political pundits have uh, were saying about our election and have said for a long time uh, there was no hostility to the s word you know the socialism is no longer a dirty word times have changed the new generations and this is tens of millions of people did not grow up in uh, during the propaganda of the cold war they are staring into an economy that is barely going to support a standard of living for them Savant argues that her own election was no flash in the pan but reflected the mood that Sanders is tapping into the uh, electrifying effect that Bernie Sanders has had on a national platform shows that it was by no means a Seattle specific phenomenon this is a nationwide and in fact you know we're sitting in dublin right here all across europe the establishment parties are completely discredited in the eyes of the majority of working people because they can see the just the intense betrayal that's happened and people are looking for change part of her success was also achieved through harnessing support for a successful campaign to increase the minimum wage to 15 dollars an hour a campaign that has taken off nationally with several Democratic politicians and even Barack Obama supporting it. So what we did was we actually ran a campaign in 2013, won the election against a powerful uh, Democratic Party establishment incumbent who had been in office for 16 years and nobody thought we could defeat him. I mean, people looked at us, you know, the corporate media looked at us and said, well, who are these young, you know, this ragtag band of socialists, you know, what, what can they achieve? And they saw that we were able to win because we got a tremendous echo from people and then building on that we showed not only that you can win a seat but you know more importantly how do you keep that seat you don't get marginalized and you don't sell out how do you accomplish that you accomplish that by building a genuine base a momentum among working people and that's why we won 15 dollars an hour in Seattle and that example was so inspiring to workers everywhere that the 15 now campaign which i and socialist alternative launched in Seattle to go on nationwide proportions uh, workers in Los Angeles and San Francisco 115 and now as you said the presidential candidates are ha having to take a position and by the way Clinton is not calling for 15 yet but as she points out Sanders has spoken out about a need for a political revolution against the billionaire class Sanders represents a new phenomenon that gives enormous hope to the left young people and young women who in recent days have been reproached by members of the old feminist establishment like Gloria Steinem and Madeleine Albright for supporting a man against Clinton Savant does, however, take issue with his willingness to run as a Democratic Party candidate. I've personally spoken to Bernie Sanders as well and urged him last year to run as an independent. We don't agree with him that uh, this, the kind of change that he's calling for, we agree with him about the kind of change he's calling for. You know, we agree that there needs to be a political revolution against the billionaire class. We agree that nationwide minimum should be 15. We agree that public universities should be free for all students, uh, you know, and, and that can be done by taxing the rich. We agree with single-payer healthcare. We agree with all of this. What we're saying is that none of this can be accomplished, uh, you know, under the aegis of the Democratic Party establishment because that is not their agenda. Their agenda is primarily... Wall Street agenda, although there is a difference between Democrats and Republicans, and you know we should talk about Trump later on. But but what we are what we are what we what we're saying is that the fact that Sanders has has been willing to run an anti-corporate, pro-working people campaign, not taking a dime from big business, uh, and calling for these kinds of changes that people are looking for, really speaking to the needs of working people 
that is what we need to pay attention to. And do you think there's a possibility he will run as an independent if if he's beaten by Clinton for the nomination? Well, so, but so far, he's I think he's uh, he's been making a lot of overtures towards the idea that he would endorse Clinton if he lost the nomination. But we we are consistent. We we hope that he wins the nomination. We hope that he wins the presidency. But what we are also saying is that he does not win the nomination. He should run as an independent, perhaps as a, you know on the same ticket as Jill Stein on the Green Party platform. On the other side of the election, in the Republican camp, Donald Trump is making huge waves with many commentators describing him in similar terms to Sanders as essentially an anti-establishment, anti-system candidate. Savant insists that they are part of the same phenomenon of alienation from politics, but are profoundly different. I think it would it would be tempting to a lot of people, especially uh, you know corporate uh, commentators, to draw a conclusion from this that suddenly a mass of American working people has gone right wing. I think that's a superficial uh, that would be a superficial conclusion. What's actually happening is to understand Trump, you have to look at Sanders as well. You know what you see is. Uh, a deep searching among working people for alternatives to what they see as insider politics, you know, establishment candidates. These are both the Democrat establishment and the Republican establishment in the eyes of working people have completely betrayed their interests. U.S. Congress is defunct and they're looking for a change. Now, what's happening is in the absence of a real uh, building of left politics, which hasn't happened yet, you know, it's just we are in, in really embryonic stages, uh, what's happening is that there's there's been a rise of both right and left populism. So you can see Sanders gaining uh, just tens of millions of people really, really being excited by him. And then you can see Trump, on the other hand, also exciting a certain base. And, you know, one of the things that we should observe here is that Trump's rise, on the one hand, it, it reflects, uh, you know, a certain searching by people and, you know, in a distorted way, reaching, in my view, wrong conclusions because you can't build a humane world on the basis of misogyny and sexism and anti-immigrant rhetoric. But on the other hand, it, his rise also represents the complete breakdown, internal breakdown of the Republican Party. You know, this is the party that made it virtually impossible for any candidate to gain any legitimacy without being really violently anti-immigrant, for example. I mean, being anti-immigrant in the last few decades was a litmus test to be a Republican candidate. And now their Frankenstein, their Frankenstein has come back to haunt them because what is Trump saying? He's, he's the supreme anti-immigrant republic. Savant was in Dublin dipping her toe in Irish politics, speaking at a meeting organised by the Socialist Party to which she and her group are affiliated. Well, you know, uh, we are Socialist Alternative. We are a nationwide organisation in the United States and we are uh, in solidarity with many other organisations around the world uh, under the banner of the you know, Committee for Workers International. So, so the Socialist Party of Ireland is they are our co-thinkers and we're here to support the election campaigns of uh, Paul Murphy, Ruth Coppinger and so on, you know, candidates who are standing from the Socialist Party but as part of the Anti-Austerity Alliance and really it's a demonstration of what we believe which is that there is no prospect for a genuine alternative to global capitalism unless working people, you know, build links internationally and build an international mass movement against capitalism. Thank you very much. Thanks to Ruan McCormick, Shama Savant and Lara Marlowe, to our producer Declan Conlon and Gary White on sound. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to get Worldview delivered to you free of charge each week.